Pastor George here. I wanted to take a second and thank you for checking out our online messages. Our prayer is that this resource will challenge you, encourage you, and empower you as you uh, dig deeper in your relationship with Christ. But in no way will it replace God's plan for your active involvement in a local church. I do want to take a second and ask you to uh, prayerfully consider as you participate and listen to this resource, partnering with Revive as we uh, pursue our mission of seeing people live their fullest life in Christ. You can do this by going online to revivechurchga.com backslash give and making a one-time donation or setting up a recurring gift. It's through the generosity of others that we're able to provide um, a resource like this one. With that being said, uh, I do want to thank you again, and here is today's message. I've referenced this study before, but Harvard did a study on adult development. Um, It's the longest ongoing study um, ever done. And what they've kind of looked at is what makes people happy. What is the ultimate thing that makes us happy? And one of the things that they've discovered is that human beings are actually really terrible at projecting their happiness. So um, basically, this is like saying, you know, we, we think something will make us happy, but in the long run, it actually does not. And so when we have these things that we pursue, the things that we think will make us happy, and ultimately they don't. So like an example from my own life, okay, just so you guys know, I know I'm preaching and I'm the pastor, but I do not have it all together, and I do have moments of weakness. One of these moments of weaknesses came last weekend. We had some family in town, um, and I have acid reflux. I've had it my whole life. I can remember being uh, playing football growing up and not being able to drink Gatorade or Powerade because it would give me heartburn. And so now it's kind of developed into the place where if I eat too much dinner or if I eat too late or especially sugar, if I have something like with a lot of sugar near bedtime, I will often wake up in the middle of the night sick. Okay, TMI, I know, but this is my reality. And I know this is true. And I know that my diet greatly affects these uh, consequences. And so I try, I try to have my diet and self-control, but last week we had family in town. And so we uh, made dinner and then for dessert, we got one of those frozen Hershey pies. You guys know what I'm talking about? I mean, those things are so good. Come. <laughs> so we got one of those pies and we divided it out amongst everybody. We had our, our dinner and our dessert. It was great. And there was some pie left over, maybe a quarter of the pie left over. So we put it in the refrigerator, save it for later. You know, all great. Next day rolls around. It's time to go to bed, like too late to eat anything, okay? But I'm craving something sweet. And I think if I just have this little sweet treat, it'll make me happy. You guys know where the story is going. All right. I open the refrigerator and there's the pie. I'm literally going to bed. Like, I know this is a bad idea, but I want that pie so bad. So I have the pie, 
with, let's just say, an above average glass of milk, okay, because I love milk. This is terrible to say. I can't believe I did that, okay? And so I, it makes me really happy. I enjoyed that pie and that glass of milk. It's great. I lay down, and literally two or three hours later, I experience all the consequences for my sin, all right? It was not a pretty sight. I, there, it's terrible. You wake up the next day, and even the, the next day, I have a sore throat. It's just an awful situation. I thought this thing was going to make me happy, but turns out it didn't. And that is humanity in a nutshell, We have a hard day of work, we come home, we think the thing that's going to make us happy is to have that peace and that rest, so we sit down and we scroll through our phone for hours or we watch that TV show, when reality, the thing that would give us the most peace and uh, happiness would be to spend time with our spouse or to play with our kids. There's all this stuff. We have these things that we think will make us happy and we pursue them and turns out they don't actually satisfy us. The, the study actually looked at people on a train. This is for all you introverts in here, okay? They looked at people who are on a train. They're going to get on the train, and they're asked, they're surveyed, you know, what would make, what do you want to see happen on this train ride? Do you want to go on and a stranger start a conversation with you, or do you want to go on and just be left alone? Sit there on your seat on this train with your headphones in or with your phone, reading a book, whatever, just to be left alone. Everybody, right? I mean, I'm an extrovert. Leave me alone. That's my thought, right? And so they surveyed all these people. They get on the train. They all say, or most of them say they would rather be left alone. Then they did a survey of people getting off of the train. And it turns out, Over and over again, people who reported having a better train ride had some kind of interaction with a stranger. A long, deep conversation, a short, hello, hi conversation. Actually, the, the relational contact made for a better train ride than being left alone. People don't really know what's going to make us happy. And that's true. Today we continue in the book of Hebrews, and my hope is that by the end of this message, we will realize that we will have a a more full, beautiful picture of Jesus and realize that a life centered on him is what will actually bring the ultimate fulfillment, satisfaction, joy, happiness in life. We go and we continue, we're going to be looking at chapter 8 and kind of flowing into nine and even maybe 10 a little bit. So we're covering a lot of ground today. Where we've been in Hebrews, the author kind of summarizes it for us at the beginning. And it uses this word better, saying that Jesus is better, right? In fact, the the book of Hebrews uses the word better more than the entire New Testament combined. We've seen it over and over again as as we have dove into this book, right? We started out week one, Jesus is better than angels. We saw that Jesus is better than Moses. Jesus is better than the law. Jesus is a better high priest. Jesus is a better hope. We've seen this over and over and over again. And today we continue that same theme with a little bit of a riff. Because this time it's not just that Jesus is a better something, but it's that Jesus brings a better something. Jesus is the mediator of better things. He brings about the better, dare I say, happier life. And he does this by bringing about a better covenant and a better temple. So let's go to the text. This is Hebrews 8. I'm going to read verses uh, 2 through 6 or 4 through 6 here. It says, now if he were on earth, he wouldn't be a priest since there are those offering the gifts prescribed by the law. But listen to this. Verse 5 says, these serve as a copy of 
and a shadow of the heavenly things. As Moses was warned when he was about to complete the tabernacle, for God said, be careful that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. But Jesus has now obtained a superior ministry, and to that degree he is the mediator of a better covenant, which has been established on better promises. So we have this text that's saying all these things that we've talked about, the high priest, the angels, Moses, the law, Jesus is better than all of those things. And those things serve as a shadow or a copy of the real thing. Now, there's this leaning in our culture, let's say our, our Christian culture, to kind of separate itself from the Old Testament. When people talk about the Old Covenant and the New Covenant or the Old Testament and the New Testament, there's kind of this lens that the Old is bad and the New is good, right? And there's the Old Testament is bad. There's things that happen that don't, our culture doesn't follow, doesn't do anymore. Jesus came and he fulfilled the law so we can kind of let go of that. And the truth is, that is inaccurate. The Old Testament, there are things that need to be looked at with a careful lens, but the Old Testament is a copy or a shadow. It points to Jesus. It's almost like an education. For us to better understand this new covenant, we have to understand the Old Covenant. If you are a follower of Christ, you've been adopted by by the blood of Christ, that means that the Old Testament, the history that you read in those books, it is your history. And history matters. So when we look at the Old Testament, we have to understand that it has a place, that it was necessary, and that it is beautiful, but it is a copy or a shadow of the new covenant. N.T. Wright, in his uh, commentary, Hebrews for Everyone, he illustrates this with a tabletop soccer game. Now, he's from across the pond, so he calls it football, but he's wrong, okay? We have a superior, we have a superior football, all right? American football, I'm sorry. So he has this tabletop soccer game that him and all of his buddies used to play as kids. And it was like the real thing. They had these little figures that they would control. They were wearing kits, which is like the jersey for soccer. Okay? And they would kick the ball around. They would try to score goals. And they loved it. They played it all the time. They would, they would take it on trips. They would take it to school. They did everything they could to, 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 whenever they could to play this game. But he talked about the reason the game was so fun was because they already knew what real soccer was. They had their pro teams that they loved to watch and they loved to cheer for. They loved to play it themselves. They'd go out in the yard and play a pickup game of soccer. They'd pick teams. They'd set up goals between trees and they would just play this game. So they had this idea that what real soccer was. So when they played this tabletop game, it brought them all kinds of joy because they knew the reality of the big game. There were times where they wouldn't be able to play because it was raining or they wouldn't be able to play because they're at school or they wouldn't be able to play soccer because they're on a trip so they could bring out this tabletop game and it was like a copy of the real thing. The tabletop game wasn't bad, but it was definitely inferior to the real thing. Now, if you were to take that to a group of people who had no idea what soccer was, imagine them loving and playing and enjoying this game, but eventually they would realize that this is a tabletop game and with a simple ball, they could go out and play this themselves. They would realize that this was a copy of something greater. It doesn't make the tabletop game bad. It just makes it a copy of something way better. And that's what the author is getting at here. It says that Moses 
He was warned on the mountaintop to make the tabernacle and what the exact image of what he saw. It's this incredible picture. If you go back to Exodus, Moses is on the mountaintop and he's allowed the opportunity to peek into the heavenly realm and see the sanctuary of heaven and then told to make that sanctuary on earth. So when we look at the structure of the temple, it's the exact thing that Moses saw on the mountaintop. This is a reference to get us as the reader to go back to the origin story, to go back to when this worship thing first started happening, to go back to the first time since the garden that God is actually dwelling with his people. See, if we go back, we see what makes people, what makes the people of God so special is this verse that is repeated throughout all of Scripture. We see it in Exodus 29, Ezekiel 37 and 48, John 14, 2 Corinthians, and Revelation 21. And it says, I shall be their God, and they shall be my people, and I will dwell among them. What makes the people of God so unique is that their creator God dwells with them. This is what we see in Genesis 1 and 2. This was the intention for mankind. This is what we were designed to do. We were designed to partner with our creator God to steward his creation. God wanted to partner with his image-bearing creation to rule over all other creation. That was our intent. That was the design. But humanity did not want to partner with God and under his authority. We wanted to do it on our own. And in their rebellion, they broke off that relationship. And that re- when you break that relationship, there are consequences. Because God is a just, holy God. And he cannot allow sin to be in his presence. So we actually see the first sacrifice in that story. It says that Adam and Eve knew they were naked. And God took the skin of an animal and clothed them. For the first time in the Bible in Genesis, we see the lifeblood of a creation cover the sin death of creation. It's from the very beginning. God has done everything he could to dwell with his people. Because of that sin, they're actually cast out of the garden. And it's when we get to Moses and the tabernacle is the first time that we actually see God dwell with his people again. This is what's called the Old Covenant. In fact, you can kind of um, separate the Old Testament into several different covenants. And God has a covenant with um, Noah. He has a covenant with Abraham, with King David, and then the one today with Moses in the tabernacle. And these are all moments where the God is doing his best to bridge the gap and dwell with his creation. Sandra Richter in her book, The Epic of Eden, says this about the Moses and Tabernacle story. She says, this is the most detailed chapter in all of redemptive history. It is what our New Testament writers speak of as the Old Covenant, and it lays the typological groundwork for the New Testament. Now, those are big words. I understand. Typological groundwork. Like, what? Let me kind of, this is important for us. If you're a believer, it's important for you to understand this, okay? So I know those can be overwhelming, but it's really kind of easy-ish to understand, all right? Typological, and the the scripture terms, it uses this word type as like a lens or a stand-in to help us understand what is currently going on. So, you have the, we've talked about how this scripture says that these things were a copy or a shadow. This is what the scripture refers to as a type. 
And they are a kind of like reference to real people with, in real history, in a real space and time that allow us to understand a current real people, a real history, a real place and time. So the old covenant allows us to understand the new covenant. So the old covenant, Moses, tabernacle, they're not bad. They become a way for you and I to better understand Jesus and his new covenant and his new temple. Sandra Richter uses an illustration and I'm going to, I think it's beautiful. So I'm going to use it too. Anybody here ever seen uh, the movie Flight of the Phoenix? All right, me neither. So, you know, you're fine. I, I haven't seen it and this made perfect sense to me. The movie is about a pilot and crew that are crashed in the Sahara Desert. Their plane has gone down and they're stranded. And as they're in the desert, they realize that there's no hope for rescue, there's no hope for survival, and it's a real bad situation. And as their food and their water begin to dwindle, they kind of have their backs against their wall and they don't really know what they're going to do. And that's when a uh, German engineer speaks up. Now, keep in mind, he's hated by everybody else on the plane. But he speaks up and says that he is a, I gotta, I'm not going to pronounce this word, aeronautical engineer. All right. Big word, meaning he designs airplanes. Okay. And so he communicates to the crew that and he, he, there has to be debate and banter because they don't like him and they don't trust him. But he convinces everybody that they should follow his leadership. And their only chance for survival is to rebuild this airplane. So they're convinced. They listen. They begin to brutally ration their food and water. They begin to labor to the point of collapsing. They're working as hard as they possibly can, have all their hope in this engineer's plan to rebuild this plane. And they're following him. They're listening to him. It doesn't always run smoothly, but that's kind of the point of the movie. There's conflict. And they finally get this plane ready to go. And it's the night before their first test flight. And... The pilot is sitting there and you have this moment of conversation with the engineer and he asks, so what kind of planes do you design? The engineer's response, model airplanes. (laughs) You can imagine the shock and the horror and the frustration. This group has put all of their hope, all of their energy, all of their effort in this design for a guy that doesn't even make real planes. He makes model airplanes. You can just tell how frustrated these people would be. But there's good news. There's good news. Model airplanes actually operate on the same principles as full-size planes. The only difference is the cargo, right? A model airplane can carry very little while a Boeing 747 can carry up to 400 people across the world. This is the essence of what type is in Scripture. It's real, it works, it happened, but it operates on a limited fulfillment. So all the things with Moses and the Old Covenant, they were real, they were based on the same principles as the New Covenant, but they could carry no cargo. The new covenant that we see in Jesus is different. It can carry as many souls as it must across the barrier from death to life. 
So that's what we see. That is what Hebrews is doing. The author spends the next two chapters unpacking this place of worship, the tabernacle and the temple, right? And the, what we see is kind of use these words interchangeably. God's mission is to dwell among his people. So when the people are uh, wanderers, wandering through the desert and the wilderness, God's presence is a wandering presence set up in the temple that can go with his people. But when the people begin to settle and build cities, God settles with his people and stays with them and it builds the temple. So you have the same concept, but God's goal, whether they're traveling or whether they're sedentary, is to dwell with his people. So he has them set up in the chapters eight and nine, unpack what that looks like. It talks about, we can't, we don't have time to read all of them. It talks about what happens in the temple and how it's set up. It talks about how Jesus' blood is greater and like the the blood of the Old Testament. And so what I kind of want to do is I want to briefly talk about this temple so that we can get a picture of this type to help us understand the new covenant. I'm going to have Lauren throw up this uh, picture on the screen. We'll see. This is the the tabernacle, all right? So the way the tabernacle, that could be broken down, it would travel with the people. When we see later, when they build the temple, it actually looks exactly like this, but it's permanent and the columns are ornate and beautiful. But you have... You have three parts here. Yeah, so you've got three parts. You've got this outer part is the, the outer, um, how, what do they call it? The outer court. Yeah. And the outer court was for any Israelite who was clean and who had the appropriate sacrifices. So if you were clean and you were there to worship and you were an Israelite, you were allowed in the outer court. Now you have this little structure halfway through and there's this first part here where you can enter in This is called the uh, holy place. Only priests were allowed in the holy place, not the regular worshiper. And then inside of that, there's even a smaller room called the holy of holies. There was only one person in the whole Israelite nation, the whole vast of God's people, only one person could enter that room. And even that person could only do it one day a year. And that's the high priest. And when the high priest entered into this room, he entered with fear and trembling, right? He had all these rituals that he had to do so that he first would be clean, ceremonial clean. And then he would walk in and he would make sacrifices on behalf of all of the people. And if the high priest had not done something correct, had skipped a step in the the ceremonies, had buttoned his... uh, garments the wrong way, had did something wrong, it was not clean, he would actually fall over dead. Because God's presence, remember God's goal is to dwell with his people, and his literal presence on earth was in the holiest of holies. It was in that inner room. It was a way that God was able to dwell with his people. So we see that each area becomes more and more restricted, or more and more sanctified, more and more holy. And the day of the atonement, the priest would go in and he'd spatter the blood all over the altar and he would pay the price for, and he would cover the sins of the people. So here we have the weight of this shadow, this copy, this type that we've been talking about. God has his tabernacle. He has this tabernacle that he has built, the system that he's put in place so that he could dwell with his people. But the reality is that in order to dwell with God, you must either be holy or be dead. So yes, God is with his people. 
But the common worshiper, the everyday person, even the average priest would never actually sit foot in the presence of God. So you have this Old Testament reality. It teaches us the reality of the consequences of sin. It teaches us that we need forgiveness. It teaches, we see a system that does its best to cover those sins and offer forgiveness. But ultimately, it falls short. It was effective. Go read Leviticus. It was effective for covering the sin of people. It was historical. It was real. But it was limited. So to go back to Richter and quote her once again, she says that if humanity was to fully re-enter the presence of God, the model airplane would no longer do. A Boeing 747 must be necessary. Hebrews 8 through 9 and even a little bit of 10 are telling us that Jesus is the Boeing 747. Can you wrap your mind around that beauty? We have this Old Testament thing, that, and this, is the, this, this reality that we've briefly talked about would have been second nature for the original readers of this letter. They, they would have been able to look up and see the temple. We, we know based on things that are above my head that this book is written just before the temple was actually destroyed once and for all. So they're able to look up and see this temple. They're able to look up and know what this is like. They experienced the, the fact that they were followers of God, but never once able to set foot in his presence. They know this reality that the temple worship, they understood it, but they also understood that the closest they would ever get to the presence of God was standing in the outer court. And that was only if they were clean and had the appropriate sacrifice. This was the reality of temple worship, but that was a shadow because the mind-blowing paradigm-shattering reality of the new covenant was that Jesus came as a human or in human form to bring God's presence to us. We've seen on multiple occasions that throughout this letter that Jesus went behind the curtain, that he entered the holiest of holies. And when he died on the cross, that veil was ripped in two from top to bottom and that the holy of holies was thrown open. No longer is it restricted to the high priest who's done all this cleansing. No, the blood of Jesus on the cross has cleansed all who believe. You don't have to be special. You don't have to come from a certain line. You don't have to be a part of a certain group of people. You place your faith in Christ and you are cleansed of your sin because of what Jesus did on the cross. You don't have to be put together. You don't even have to be clean. Jesus has done it for you. You see the beautiful picture here. No longer is it about perfection. No longer is it about being absolutely perfect to be in the Holy of Holies, but Jesus has made each of us holy. The lost, the sick, the deformed, the disabled, the excluded, the deceitful, the addict, the sexually immoral, the lonely, we are all invited to draw near because of what Jesus has done as our high priest. Jesus is the high priest who enters the Holy of Holies on our behalf. He truly and finally and completely atones for our sins. Jesus is the sacrifice. Jesus himself is the veil that he willingly goes to the cross and is ripped apart. We see it in Hebrews 10, 20. It says that he inaugurated for us a new and living way through the curtain. That is through his flesh. 
Jesus is the Boeing 747. And because of the model airplane, the old covenant, all of humanity can be educated on his mission, which we see in Exodus 5:28 and all throughout scripture. When Moses is told to build this sanctuary so that I may dwell among them. I am their God, they are my people, and I will dwell among them. Because Jesus has cleansed you. All right, I'm gonna have to cut some of this short. This is gonna be too long. Let me wrap it up like this. Because Jesus has cleansed us from all unrighteousness, you are now holy. Meaning that just as God dwelled in the Holy of Holies in the temple, now because of the, the Jesus dying on the cross, he can dwell with you. We are actually transformed into the new temple and the Holy Spirit enters inside of us, making us now the dwelling place for our heavenly father. In chapter eight, the the Hebrews author quotes Jeremiah 31. This is a huge part. He quotes this huge part from Jeremiah 31, talking about this old covenant. And this is what he says in one part. It says, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. Jesus, or the Holy Spirit fills us and transforms us to walk in a way that loves what God loves and wills what God wills. So take it back to the beginning of the, uh, of the message. The secret to a happy life is a life in Jesus. It's a life in our Savior. It's realizing that you are the temple of the living God, and therefore everything you do is an act of worship. The way that you treat your spouse is worship. The way you drive your car is worship. The way you do your job is worship. And as we begin to treat everything we do as worship, we will surely begin to see magnificent change in our life happen where we pursue things that will ultimately truly bring fulfillment and make us happy. We don't chase temporary things. We don't chase copies. We don't chase shadows. We don't chase a false hope going back to last week, but we chase a risen savior who is, dwells within us. And that, so it all starts there. It all starts with surrendering to Jesus. Will you let him in? Will you let your soul be transformed by the new covenant? Will you trust in and worship Jesus? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that we have life in you. I thank you that no longer do we have to go to some special place to worship. No longer do we have to rely on someone else to go in your presence for us. That no matter where we are, in the sanctuary, in a closet, in a car, in a grocery store, we are invited to dwell with you in anything and everything we do. I pray that as we navigate the complexities of life, Holy Spirit, that you will remind us that you are dwelling within us and that we can live lives that are transformed by the holy presence of our creator God. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.